Stay connected this winter with this unbeatable deal from BreezeLine. Get reliable, fiber-powered internet for just $19.99 per month with all-in pricing for two years. But that's not all. Your first month is on us. This deal gets better with a free modem and installation along with free Wi-Fi your way whole home coverage. Safeguard your network from cyber threats and keep all your devices connected and secured with this amazing offer. Act now. Terms and conditions apply. Offer expires March 3rd, 2024. Learn more at BreezeLine.com. Sofas, recliners, love seats, everything is better in leather. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley, where bold meets durable. And wait a minute, who's been finger painting on the couch again? That's okay, leather is easy to clean. The new leather collection at Ashley is built with the durability you need for the whole family. Yes, pets too. Luxury is meant to be livable. Shop chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Welcome to Pod Save the World. I'm Tommy Vitor. I'm Ben Rhodes. Ben, happy Election Day. Of course, when this comes out, it'll be the day after Election Day, so we'll know for sure if it's happy. It's uh, it's always happy to be reminded we live in a democracy. In democracy, right? yeah, a healthy. Should be happy for Election Day on its own right. Thriving yeah. democracy. Thank yeah, you, Kentucky, we'll Virginia, Pennsylvania, a bunch of places for turning out. Let's go. Let's go. That also means though we're a year out from 2024, Ben. The big one. Yeah, it's a little frightening. You know? Yeah, it's a little frightening. Yeah. We had some big plans here. Crooked Media to cover the presidential, the Senate, and the House races, all of it. If you want to help expand that coverage, join the Friends of the Pod community, our subscription community, crooked.com slash friends. And just by joining, you uh, support Vote Save America. So how nice is that? This is the year to any up and become a friend. Friend of the Pod. Yeah. And hang out with us in the Pod Save the World Discord. We got a great show for you today. Uh, not elections, but a lot of stuff happening abroad. We are going to talk about how it's been one month after the Hamas attack on Israel. And in today's episode, we're going to talk through what we know about the Israeli endgame and the conflict, where U.S. diplomacy has been effective and where it has not been effective. And then we'll talk about the politics back home. And then uh, former President Obama's thoughts from over the weekend were interesting. Made a little news. Yeah, just just a little, Tommy. You, uh, you know, uh, you served up that pitch and he took a swing and, uh, you know, we got a lot of uh, ripples. Yeah, so. it's ripple, yeah. ripples yeah, 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 yeah. something. Ripple, yeah. Uh, and then we're also going to cover the latest news from Russia and Ukraine, some grim news for Afghan refugees and Boris Johnson's genius televised COVID plan. You know, be excited for that. And then, Ben, you did the interview today. Who did you talk to? I talked to Nathan Thrall. Uh, he used to be in charge of uh, monitoring the Arab-Israeli conflict for the International Crisis Group, is now a writer. He has a book out recently called The Day in the Life of Abed Salama which is really through one story telling uh, readers what it's like to live under occupation in the West Bank. Um, that book came out just a few days before October 7th. So obviously his book release has been colored by that. Uh, but we talk about um, the story he decided to tell, what the occupation is like for Palestinians, what's happening in the West Bank now um, after October 7th, the reaction to his book, including the fact that a bunch of his events have been canceled Um uh, about a quarter of them, I think, um, and, and just how to think and talk about this issue, the, the same type of stuff we've been talking on this podcast. But it's a great step back look at the broader dynamic in play here. And that's why we wanted to have this conversation. Yeah, Ben, so I, I, I saw like I learned about Nathan through the controversy around his book. I assumed it was some kind of like anti-Israel screed, but it's just a book about 
life in the West Bank and Gaza, right? I mean, it's, it's following human beings and they're telling their story. It's about a, it's about a father whose uh, kindergarten son uh, died in a tragic bus accident, but that it illuminates uh, the nature of life in under occupation. Um, and so therefore, you know, through this very human story, it describes the kind of second-class citizenship of Palestinians. And, mm-hmm. and that is a story that people, some people don't want to hear right now, you yeah. know? And, yeah. and, and so we talk about the complexity of that, that, that dynamic, obviously. Oof, boy. Um, I think I would have kept that book event going, but you know, yeah. that's just me. Yeah. And then at the very end for our friends of the pod community members, uh, Ben and I are going to answer some questions. If you want to join the friends of the pod community, go to cricket.com slash friends. Okay, well, let's turn to the latest news from Gaza because it has been a month since the Hamas terrorist attack. And uh, the Gaza Health Ministry now says that the death toll since that fighting started has surpassed 10,000 people. That ministry is, of course, run by Hamas, but a spokesman at the Pentagon said that the U.S. believes the number of civilian casualties is in the thousands. Uh, so there's no doubt that the the death toll is just horrific. The Israeli military, or IDF, says its ground forces have basically cut Gaza in half and that they are encircling Gaza City in the north, which is believed to be Hamas's stronghold. The IDF also said that as of November 1st, they had dropped at least 10,000 bombs, uh, making this one of the most intense air campaigns in recent military history. Uh, And in the first two weeks of the conflict, most of those bombs dropped were 1,000-pound or 2,000-pound bombs, which were intended to target Hezbollah military positions and are incredibly poorly suited for urban environments if you want to avoid civilian casualties. Over the weekend, uh, thousands of Israelis took to the streets in Tel Aviv to show support for the families of the hostages being held in Gaza and to demand that the Israeli government do more to bring them home. There is less consensus on how exactly to accomplish that goal. Some people in the streets are pressuring Netanyahu to consider an offer from Hamas to release captives in exchange for releasing uh, Palestinian prisoners held by Israel. Others are pushing him to continue the military effort until Hamas relents and lets hostages go. So it's divided opinion, but everybody wants those people home. Internationally, uh, Israel is facing increasing pressure and isolation because of the war. South Africa, Chile, Colombia, Honduras, and Bolivia have all withdrawn their ambassadors in protest, as have Bahrain, Turkey, and Chad, though those three, I think, are less. They're hardly longstanding friends of Israel, although Bahrain is a Abraham Accord yeah. country. So, you know, Ben, I, I want to start with just trying to figure out what the Israeli government's endgame is when this conflict, because it's been a month. Uh, here's an excerpt from an interview Israeli Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu did with ABC News. Who should govern Gaza when this is over? Those who don't want to uh, continue the way of Hamas. It certainly is not. Uh, uh, I think Israel will, for uh, an indefinite period, will have the overall uh, security responsibility because we've seen what happens when we don't have it. When we don't have that security responsibility, what we have is the eruption of uh, Hamas terror on a scale that we couldn't imagine. So reading between the lines of that answer, I mean, it does sound like the plan is to capture the entirety of the Gaza Strip and then occupy it for an indefinite period of time, uh, which is scary for a lot of reasons for civilians, for the hostages, all of the above. Yeah, I don't know how else to hear that answer. And uh, if you look at what's come out the last two or three days, it's clearly an intention from the Israeli government to signal this is a more maximalist version of of what they could do, mm-hmm. uh, because you've seen them uh, resist calls for humanitarian pause, uh, you know, which we can talk about. We've seen them, you know, move sufficient ground forces to encircle Gaza City that it doesn't feel like these are going to be surgical operations. It feels like an effort to be prepared to move in and block by block consolidate control of Gaza, tunnel by tunnel, destroy tunnel by tunnel, destroy tunnel networks. 
and then Netanyahu's comments indicate that, you know, if they're going to have quote unquote security responsibility, I mean, they already controlled everything that could come in and out of Gaza. But, you know, security responsibilities would seem to indicate some kind of long-term open-ended de facto occupation, if not outright occupation of the Gaza Strip. And what people have to remember is, number one, the hostages, it's, I think, harder to secure their peaceful return to Israel or to other countries through a, a war than than through negotiation. That's just, you know, that's just the reality of it. I, I'm really glad you said that. And like, sorry to interrupt, but like yeah. we get a lot of feedback on the show. Some of it each week says we're pro-Israel yeah, yeah, or yeah. pro-Hamas. You know what I mean? It's like, that's fine. Everyone's entitled to their opinion. But like when we are, the thing we're constantly thinking about are the civilians you see getting pulled out of rubble in Gaza and these 240 hostages and their families. And when you talk about wanting the Israeli government to show restraint when it comes to airstrikes and restraint when it comes to the ground invasion, it's because... Um, we believe that showing restraint gives the hostages and these civilians the best chance of survival. Truly. I, I mean, I'm, you're seeing reports. Hamas is saying that hostages are dying in these airstrikes already. I don't know if that's true or not, but. I don't know if that's true, but it stands to reason that if you're dropping a thousand pound bombs on places where hostages are being held, that they're, they're at some risk, you know. So that's the hostage piece of this. But then the, the people of Gaza, people have to remember that Egypt has said they will not allow them into Egypt. And so that means that this entire ground campaign and this continued bombardment of Gaza is going to take place with two million people who, who have nowhere to go. And the pace of destruction that we're seeing of, of just structures and homes in Gaza, they're going to be homeless. They don't have access to food and water and fuel. And so there, there's no answer in that Netanyahu answer about how are those people going to, to live and how are they going to be able to feed themselves and to have clean water for their children? And how are they going to avoid being caught in this this war? Who is, in the Israeli government's view, who is Hamas and who's not? And so I think what we've learned from what Netanyahu said the last couple of days and, and other messaging from the Israeli government is this is likely to be, you know, at least a month, two months, if not more, frankly, and is likely to kind of move into some type of long-term Israeli occupation of Gaza, which is a kind of harrowing thought because I don't see how that doesn't lead to a significant amount of additional civilian deaths, greater risk for the hostages, continued risk of regional escalation. And, you know, this military objective of destroying Hamas, can that be achieved when Hamas's leadership, a lot of it is not in Gaza, they're in other countries. And, and, and frankly, the efforts to destroy Hamas could contribute to a radicalization that leads to something else emerging. Yeah. You know, it's yes. just, it makes me filled with a lot of trepidation. Me too. And look, it's easy like week to week to get overwhelmed by the, the statistics of war, the growing casualty count, the growing number of airstrikes. So we wanted to play for you a clip from a guy named uh, Mahmoud Shalabi. He's the acting Gaza director for medical aid for Palestinians. We heard from him on an episode several weeks back. Uh, here he is describing what it's like when an airstrike hits near your home. I was sitting with my kids on the sofa and suddenly there was a huge explosion. A huge explosion. I've never heard this sound before. And um, my, my child, my daughter, Misk, she, she started screaming and panically, hysterically crying. I hugged her and I made sure that she's okay. I told her there is nothing wrong with us. We are all okay. 
Alhamdulillah, there is nothing happening to us. And I made sure that all my children, the three of them, were sitting together and that their mom was next to them. And then I went outside. I rushed outside immediately to see what was happening. I opened the door and I honestly could not see in front of me and could not breathe. It was gray. It was cement. It was gunpowder. It was everything, tiny particles scattered all over around me and I, I couldn't actually go out. I, I shut the door close. Um, I took one of the masks, the remnants of COVID-19, soaked it in water, put it on my nose and mouth and went rushing outside. My neighborhood was destroyed. One simple rocket, just one rocket. So that's an example of what how hard it is for people who are stuck in Gaza and can't leave. This is a, another clip from a man named Hamza Elbuhesi, who's a Gaza-based journalist who is talking about the agonizing choice that he has to make as someone with a foreign passport holder, uh, but whose family doesn't necessarily have that freedom of movement. For cooking, we started to use woods uh, to cook because the gas is finished as well. Uh, we feel that we are back uh, to the old centuries, honestly. I'm British national and I have my spouse with me, but she is uh, she doesn't have a visa and I cannot leave Gaza without her. She is very scared and very fragile. He's basically saying, you know, he, he can leave, but he can't bring his wife with him. Yeah, there... <laughs> There, there's, uh, it, it's almost impossible to get your mind around what it must feel like to, to be in this incredibly condensed, already small strip of land and, and to be, be trapped there, you know? And again, we've said, we, it, we'll say every week, um, Hamas, what they did on October 7th, absolutely outrageous, horrific um, initiated this cycle uh, of violence, didn't initiate the entire Israeli-Palestinian conflict, though, let's be clear, and, and we talked about that with Nathan Thrall. But there are alternatives to, to what you just heard. I mean, there just are. It's not a requirement that bombs are dropped to destroy that man's neighborhood because of what Hamas did. And there are 2 million people that live there, and there are 4,000 children that are already dead. And I just think that people need to create enough space to understand that that guy's not Hamas, you know? Yeah. So, you know, the Biden administration, they are trying every day to, to manage this conflict. The messaging and diplomacy about the war has evolved, albeit slowly. Uh, initially, the White House basically only stressed that Israel had a right to defend itself. But for the past 10 days or so, officials like Tony Blinken, the Secretary of State, have been calling for a humanitarian pause to allow aid into Gaza. Uh, President Biden reportedly raised the idea of a humanitarian pause directly with Bibi Netanyahu during a phone call on Monday. Uh, so far, those calls have been pretty firmly rejected. In that ABC News interview we heard earlier, Netanyahu said there will be no general ceasefire without the release of hostages. And then he suggested he might consider, quote, uh, tactical little pauses, an hour here, an hour there, to enable humanitarian goods to come in or hostages to leave. So not a lot of time. The New York Times reported that behind the scenes, the U.S. is pushing Israel to do more to protect civilians. They want more intelligence gathering. They want better targeting uh, of airstrikes to reduce civilian casualties. And it, as part of that effort, they are preparing to send Israel smaller bombs to help avoid civilian casualties. So like in practice, I get it. 
but a very tough message to explain to the world how sending more weapons to Israel could avoid civilian casualties. Tony Blinken has been all over the world. He was in Israel, the West Bank, Jordan, Turkey, and Iraq. Here's a clip from Tony. I think we've had important conversations and uh, more than conversations, we're making sure that the different influence and relationships that countries in the region have, including the countries that I visited or spoke to, that they're using that to make sure that this conflict and crisis doesn't spread. Uh, and that's, that's critical, and I think uh, countries are very much engaged in trying to make sure that that, that, that doesn't happen. So uh, that's important, and sometimes the absence of something bad happening uh, may not be the most obvious evidence of progress, but uh, it is. It's something we've talked about before on the show, and you know, I remember talking with you in government, like sometimes diplomacy prevents conflicts from happening or from spreading. I think one way to interpret the specifics there is they're trying to keep Iran out of this fight. They're trying yeah. to keep a th- lid on things regionally. By the way, Tony did the went to the countries I talked about in the Middle East, and then he went to Tokyo, South Korea, and India for consultations around the uh, for the G7. So I do not envy that guy's yeah. travel schedule. But Ben, what do you, you know, a month in, what do you make of the U.S. diplomatic effort so far? Like, what do you think has succeeded and failed in your view? So I guess on the on the succeeding part, uh, look, clearly the U.S. had a, a prioritization around preventing that kind of regional escalation, Iran getting in or all of its proxies getting in, uh, Hezbollah getting in. And so you had the deployment of U.S. aircraft carriers to the region. You had clearly the U.S. messaging Iran through everybody they could, probably third countries, China, like Turkey, Oman, yeah. Turkey, yeah. Qatar, messaging the Iranians, stay out of this. When the Iranian proxies were attacking U.S. forces in Syria, in, in Iraq, you had U.S. airstrikes on the IRGC. So this me- messaging wasn't just diplomacy. It was also yeah. militarily. Thus far, you know, it hasn't spread. Um, Nasrallah, Hassan Nasrallah, the leader of Hezbollah, gave a speech last week, highly anticipated condemning Israel, of course, but, you know, s- stopping short of getting in the war. Hezbollah has been relatively restrained um, on Israel's northern border. Iran has not gotten more directly involved. And so um, I think what he, uh, Tony's alluding to it in terms of it not spreading is... Thus far, it has been contained generally um, to Gaza and and to the West Bank. So there's some success there. Um, you, it's hard to draw direct causation, but but that hasn't happened, and mm-hmm. that's good. Um, I, I also think there's an effort to try to probably keep some of a lid on just kind of this blowing up the region generally, you know, and we don't know what's happening inside of countries to, you know, prevent, I don't know, attacks on embassies and things like that. And then in terms of Israel itself, you know, there have been small successes. We had the release of a few hostages negotiated through Qatar. We had some trucks periodically getting in across the Rafah crossing with humanitarian assistance for Gaza. And, and that seems like that was, you know, largely the result of U.S. diplomacy. I think they also pushed them really hard to uh, restore internet and communications in Gaza when it went out that That's evening right. a couple yeah. weeks ago. So, so you know, that... That's on the positive side of the ledger. I think on the negative side, look, when we were in government, you and I, you know, and I was in these meetings for eight years, you were in them for more than half of that. There were two ways of thinking about, I mean, more than two, but I'll simplify, two ways of thinking about the relationship with someone like Netanyahu. There was a view that I think Joe Biden has, which you have to completely throw your arms around Netanyahu, no daylight publicly, back him completely in public, show love for Israel, and then that's going to give you some leverage to affect Israeli decision-making. Then I think Obama's view was, you know what, like we, we have Israel's back as a country, 
But when Bibi Netanyahu is leader of the Israeli government, does things that we really don't like, we're going to call it out. And we can go back and look at the previous Gaza war. You know, we you know we called certain airstrikes disgraceful, and mm-hmm. we, you know we were much more forward leaning in some of the language used to criticize certain Israeli actions. Now that didn't you know affect Netanyahu's decision making per se, but what it did do is signal to the rest of the world, hey, we're not we're not all behind this. Like we we you know we see the Palestinian loss of life as equal to the Israeli loss of life, and we are trying our best to to kind of rein this in. Um, and, and so that 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 was a an approach that maybe didn't totally affect Bibi's calculus, but at least allowed the United States to position itself in it as working for different outcomes. I think that the, where, where, where they've had serious problems is that, that approach of, of hugging Bibi to get him to do things, that's failed. It hasn't worked. And we should just say that, you know, and because and, you have the Secretary of State go over there to get a humanitarian pause and you have the Israeli prime minister say, no, I'm not doing that. Because also implicit in this pause message, right, and you see this in Franklin Foer's book about the 2021 Gaza crisis, yeah. was basically that Biden gave Netanyahu about 10, 11 days worth of leeway. And then he finally got on the phone with him and said, hey, buddy, you're out of runway. The strikes had to stop. And they stopped. Yeah. That was kind of the story we were told about 2021. But either that call has not been made in this case, or they don't want to make it, or BB is saying, I'm not going to do what you say. Yeah, and and let's. They said this at the time, you know, the, like that they they learned the lesson of Obama's failure, you know. In in and and look, I mean, uh, this isn't about one piece of me right or wrong. It's about what is working, uh, because it, when because also on the pause itself, and to, just to kind of focus it on that. I've talked to some people in, in 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 different governments. You know, I think what the Arabs are advocating for the Arab governments is like something in between a. A short pause and a ceasefire. It's basically like five days, seven yeah. days, something that would allow you to put in massive amounts of humanitarian aid to get into Gaza, maybe get a significant amount of wounded people out and have really intensified negotiations to get hostages out. That makes a lot of sense to me. Me too. You know, BB, even when he's trying to throw a bone to the U.S., it's like, yeah, maybe even an hour, as you said, like maybe we'll have like a two-hour pause to get 20 trucks in. And he said it in such a dismissive way. Yeah, yeah. And so I think they're in this position where you can tell that the, con- the administration is increasingly frustrated with BB. They're kind of putting out on background, you know, we don't like this. Uh, we're advocating for a longer pause. But to that point about the phone call that, you know, that you just made, Tommy, I mean, I think that's the core point is that we haven't even done the supplemental yet. Right. So if we're going to, if, if assuming that does go forward, you know, there how, it could be 15,000 Palestinians dead. Um, half of Gaza could have been destroyed by then. And in the middle of that, we're going to ship over $15 billion at the same time that we're kind of leaking out on background that we don't like what's happening. I mean, that, that's what worries me is that how does that impact, obviously, Palestinian lives? How does that impact every other U.S. priority in the world? Um, you know, we, we've talked a lot on this podcast about how the global south didn't want to get behind, say, our support for Ukraine because they thought it was hypocritical. That was before the Gaza war. Yep. And I'm just trying to imagine the U.S. trying to get support for anything if this goes the way it looks like it's going. Yeah, and, and you know, there was a report on October 27th in the Washington Post where a Hamas uh, member of the Hamas leadership based in Beirut said that there were negotiations that had been bro- brokered by Egypt and Qatar where Hamas proposed to release all foreign civilian hostages in exchange for a five-day ceasefire, and then Israeli civilian hostages would be released if additional demands were met, he said, including the release of Palestinian women and children in Israeli prisons and the opening of the Rafah border crossing so wounded civilians can receive care in Egypt and fuel, food, medicine, and water can enter Gaza. Now, 
obviously like there's a lot of stipulations there like you have to figure out a way to make Hamas uphold its end of the deal but if your priority is getting back hostages and protecting civilians in Gaza I think trying to negotiate that kind of deal would make a lot of sense that doesn't mean that after five days there's a permanent ceasefire and Israelis go on with Hamas existing in its current forum in Gaza like to your point you've made earlier like we both anticipate that the Mossad will hunt Hamas uh, leaders to the end of the earth who are part of this terrorist attack and there will be continued military operations but I mean if you want to get hostages home this seems like a an opportunity yeah and look I, I you just made a really important point I mean I understand that Israel doesn't want to accept and shouldn't accept some reality in which they're forced to live next to Hamas with a bunch of rockets uh, for the for the for the rest of you know for the foreseeable future here. The question is there is there a much is there just a different approach to take here to dislodge Hamas to kind of end them as a political entity with a lot of support from Arab partners that also don't want Hamas around. And yeah, I I would fully expect Israel to continue to target. Uh, Hamas leadership and try to deny Hamas certain military capabilities and to try to have there be. But but again, the thing that's going to do that over time is there to, for there to be a different Palestinian leadership than Hamas in Gaza. And and I worry that just destroying Gaza, it doesn't accomplish that question of what are you replacing Hamas with? Uh, what are you building? And, and to people listening to this getting really frustrated and saying, I don't understand why you guys can't get behind. Israel has every right to dismantle Hamas. The way they are doing this now with a government led by Bibi Netanyahu, remember, this isn't a question of what government you want to project on Israel. It's led by this guy, Netanyahu. They are doing it this way. They are doing it in a way that is killing a lot of innocent people. And 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 I don't think that is the way to accomplish what Israel wants to accomplish. And I also think that has obviously profound humanitarian consequences for Palestinians and frankly, profound consequences for U.S. interests that could could go for many years here. Yeah, I mean, humanitarian consequences in the short term, long term, it's the most likely way to repeat this cycle of violence. Yeah. What one really frustrating piece of pushback you're seeing in the press from Israeli officials is saying, you know, look at past US wars, including World War II, there were unbelievable levels of civilian casualties. You know, how can you criticize us when there is this history of like, you know, nuking Japan, for example? I just find that to be such like obviously wars are hell. Civilians have died in every conflict. I'm not trying to be naive here, but like the notion that the military effort required to defeat the Nazis is somehow comparable to taking out Hamas's leadership feels crazy to me. And it just seems like kind of a, a glib way to dismiss civilian casualties than really to like take on the issue and, and try to do something about it. Yeah, it's also the point that those laws of war were developed after World War II to prevent right. that from happening. Right. I mean, every time I hear that talking point, I'm like, well, yeah, everybody got together and decided, hey, we shouldn't do that again. And that doesn't mean the U.S. has like clean hands after that. I mean, Vietnam, enormous amounts of indiscriminate bombing, horrific, but I think that's bad. And again, you have, what's so frustrating about this whole argument is, because I've seen this too, you have international laws of war, not for like, because there's such a thing as an easy war. <laughs> Where, you know, uh, you have them because y you want to restrain the loss of civilian life in any armed conflict. And, and so if you start to say, and this is why, by the way, we had issues with delivering cluster munitions to the Ukrainians, you know, uh, even, even though that's not technically, I think, a violation of the laws of war. If you start to say, well, the laws of war don't apply to the wars that, that certain wars that we care about, I care about yeah. 
Like, well, then nobody's ever going to, there's no incentive for anybody to ever follow any laws of war. Right, right. So calls for a ceasefire or some sort of humanitarian pause are slowly growing in Congress. Uh, Last week, Senator Dick Durbin called for a ceasefire, albeit a conditional one where Hamas releases prisoners first. But he used the word ceasefire, which like two weeks before was getting people run out of organizations for just saying it out loud. Uh, Senator Brian Schatz called for a humanitarian pause, saying, quote, the scale of human suffering right now is untenable. Senator Chris Murphy said, quote, it's time for Israel's friends to recognize that the current approach is causing an unacceptable level of civilian harm and does not appear likely to achieve the goal of uh, ending the threat from Hamas. I urge Israel to immediately reconsider this approach. Those statements followed uh, a number of similar calls from Democrats in the House. And then we have some survey data, Ben. Uh, NBC News reported on a poll in Michigan that surveyed President Biden's standing with Arab and Muslim Democrats and younger voters. They basically did an oversample of, of those two categories. And it found that only 16% of Arab and Muslim voters surveyed said they would vote for Biden if the election was held today. Previous polls suggest that Biden got about 70% of Arab and Muslim voters in 2020. So that would be really bad. 61% of voters under 30 said they'd vote for Biden if the election were held today, with 56% giving him a poor rating on the Israel-Palestinian conflict. Michigan is home to about 240,000 Muslims. So that kind of drop in support would tip the uh, election to Republicans. I should note that like, I, we have some friends in the, in the Biden administration. I've talked to them and they'll say to you, look, his handling of this conflict is actually probably the most popular thing he's doing right now, the most popular issue area. And maybe that's true, but I do worry it's because like some you know, right-wingers are saying yep. they support Biden on this issue, but they would never vote for him. And so, you know, look, obviously people might be saying like, why are you guys talking about the political considerations? Well, because look, Joe Biden is a political animal, yeah. right? Like t- to his credit, to his detriment, but like he tends to find the center of an issue and like, will listen when he's pushed on issues. So that's why activism really matters. But also, you know, there's this weird sense too that people seem surprised that there's a generational divide within the Democratic Party emerging on support for Israel. And like, I don't know, I keep reading these articles. I'm like, one, younger people have always made up the bulk of an anti-war movement, which is essentially what this is. So no surprise. And two, if you're under 30, the only Israel you've known is led by Bibi Netanyahu a right-wing nationalist, like hard-right Republican who, you know, went all in in support for Trump. Uh, There are APAC-aligned groups like DMFI that are getting involved in Democratic primaries, like running ads, attacking progressive Democrats in the House. Like, when you make those political decisions, there's going to be a political fallout, which I think you are probably seeing reflected in younger generations saying, wait, no, I actually, I don't support what Israel is doing. I don't support those values. Yeah, I think the Nenya point, you can't have a situation. This guy's been prime minister forever, like you said, you know, completely tried to undermine, obviously, you know, our boss, Barack Obama, uh, to the point of flying to Washington at the invitation of Republicans to make a speech to Congress against the Democratic president's foreign policy, completely embraced Trump, his reelection campaigns, you know, he had billboards of himself with Trump, right? was literally trying to uh, dismantle Israeli democracy before October 7th with mass protests in the street. Um, so the idea that, that young voters are supposed to memory hole that, you know, mm-hmm. no, the, the, this is the, 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 it matters who's running a country, you know, and, and Netanyahu is a guy who is in, in charge in Israel right now. And I think the other point I'd make about these polls, you know, I'm, I'm not as, uh, as, as, you know, plugged in as, as you guys are at Potsy America about this stuff. But just talking and interacting with younger people and and Arab and Muslim voters that I know, the thing, the reason I'd be concerned about it 
is, as you said, some of the support that Biden's getting is probably some people that, you know, are not going to vote for Joe Biden at right. the end of the day. When I talk to people, this is not like a, a small issue for them. You know, if you the Arab community in Michigan, no, it's, it's not like they're going to yeah. forget this. So you're, yeah. you know, like, I think there's a, a, a view that like maybe, you know, eight, 10 months from now, they'll be like, you know what? I didn't like his Israel policy back in uh, last year, but, you know, I don't like Trump. So this feels like an issue, a really motivating issue, a voting issue for a bunch of constituencies in the Democratic Party. And so from a policy perspective, um, you know, the question becomes, what can you do to show uh, that you you care about Palestinian life, that even if you're not exerting a ton of control over what Israel's doing right now, can you do something to kind of build back next year a, a, an aspiration for a Palestinian state or to a resumption of Palestinian life uh, um, in society? But also, can you can you speak to those people in a way that is not just saying like, you know, we support Israel, but we want them to follow the laws of war or putting out on background that, you know, you want, you have to go and engage those communities in a sustained way and show that you're hearing them and that, that, you know, they, that you might disagree with them. That's, you know, that's, that, that may very well be the end of it. But, but I, I worry that just letting that sit um, is politically not a great idea. And, and also dismissing it because some of those people are acting like fucking lunatic anti-Semites, you know, like we, we can't reinforce enough. Blaming Jews for what the Israeli government's doing is anti-Semitism and is terrible. But I think dismissing all of those polls, because you can point to some nutcases who are like tearing down postages of hostages or doing some stupid shit on campuses, that, that's, that's actually even worse because you have to be able to separate out like the, the bad actors from right. just people who are worried about this. Yeah. And I mean, I think also the other thing you're seeing a lot of is people like scoffing at the suggestion that the Arab or Muslim American community is going to vote for Trump over Biden. It's like, guys, they're just going to stay home. Yeah. You, know, you can't be so condescending. Yeah. Or they'll vote people. for a third party. And also, like, they're, a lot of these folks who are showing up in these polls frustrated about the, the current handling of Gaza were mad in 2021 about the handling of, of that war in Gaza. Yeah. Right? So it's not like a new issue. Also, lastly, Joe Biden's trying to pass this massive supplemental funding bill that includes support for Israel, a very little bit of humanitarian support, uh, for the Palestinians, the uh, Ukraine funding, like politics matter. Forget when you're the Taiwan to get... weapons. <laughs> <laughs> There's Taiwan. a technical Taiwan weapons in there. Yeah. yeah. So many weapons. Yeah. You know, like the political support really matters when you're trying to move a bill like that. And it's getting harder every day. So finally, Ben, you know, we were in Chicago last weekend. It was this very fun, uh, incredible reunion of, you know, sort of the Obama team. And, you know, without, you know, wallowing in our own nostalgia, it was very fun to just kind of remember a different era in our politics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the pre-Trump era, yeah. uh, mostly. But um, we interviewed him for Positive America. The full interview is out. Uh, it was out earlier this week. But I asked him about Gaza, specifically what his advice was for people who want to understand and engage in this conversation about the conflict, but they don't want to say the wrong thing. They don't want to upset anybody. They're terrified by the you know horrible debate that's happening on Twitter every single day. It was a long answer, so we're not going to play the whole thing, but here's a brief clip. The problem with the social media and trying to TikTok activism and trying to debate this on that is you can't speak the truth. You can pretend to speak the truth. You can speak one side of the truth. And in some cases, you can try to maintain your moral innocence, but that won't solve the problem. And so if you want to solve the problem, 
then you have to take in the whole truth. And you then have to admit nobody's hands are clean, that all of us are complicit to some degree. I think the two keys to understanding that comment are Ben are one, he's been writing his memoir, uh, second uh, passage, second book, and thinking about all the problems we didn't solve. And it's clear that's kind of eating at him, including this. And then two, uh, you can tell that Obama finds uh, the way social media has sent us to our corners. We no longer talk to each other. We no longer try to persuade each other to be enormously frustrating. But what do you make of that answer? And I, I don't know, his willingness to kind of dive into it. Yeah, no, I... I, I... Look, there's so many dimensions of this because there's his answer and then there's a reaction to his answer that we've seen the last couple of days. Um, I mean, first of all, I think the the very important point he makes there, which actually I think was probably as much directed at the left of this conversation as it is at, you know, the kind of pro-Israel side of this conversation is that social media incentivizes only talking to people who agree with you or attacking people who disagree with you. And anybody who wants to actually change something needs to be able to persuade somebody else. And and also that there there are competing narratives in this conflict. It is absolutely the case that Israel uh, has been targeted by its neighbors, by terrorism, uh, by invasions of, uh, of, from Arab states, by anti-Semitism, and by Hamas on October 7th. Um, it is also entirely the case that the Palestinians were massively displaced, have been living as uh, under occupation in some cases, have been displaced. And we could go on and on. The point yep. is that you have to have space for both of these narratives to coexist. You can't just say one is entirely right and the other just doesn't exist. And so that's a very Obama thing to be able to say the whole truth has to be confronted in order for us to find any way forward. So that's one feeling I had. The second was just a like, real disgust at the kind of you know right-wing funhouse mirrors with this. And by the way, some of the mainstream political media in this country, because the things that he said that are being seen as like, whoa, I can't believe he said that, are essentially that he said that there's a brutal occupation of mm-hmm. Palestinians and two, that he said no one's hands are clean. Does anybody, like, have other language to describe what is going on? Because there is a military occupation of, like, the, the fact that the occupation is a controversial word is only, like, an indication of the stupidity of American political discourse. Because there is a military occupation of the West Bank that has been underway since 1967. The Israeli military is in the West Bank, and Palestinians live under military occupation. If you want to invent what else are you going to call it? I, like, And so the fact that it's controversial that in 2023, almost 60 years after 1967, that, that it's controversial to say occupation, that's absurd. And then saying no one hands are clean doesn't mean that he doesn't think that what Hamas did isn't horrific. It, but does anybody think that we've all handled this well? No. Like, like, <laughs> like, like, like I, the, I had some reporters, you know, you know when like political reporters email you because they want you to, to take the bait? It's yeah, like going yeah. Out there. I got a lot of those. So stuff. I got all those like, wow, and like 10 exclamation points, like no one hands are clean, you know? And I'm like, what, wow, what? Like, he's what, like talking what, to himself he's too. Saying, he's talk, yeah, exactly. <laughs> this is absurd that this is controversial. So and it's, it's part of the, the dumb way in which we just like, because this conflict is so complicated, it's easier to make it like some American politics thing. Yes. You know, and it's not. It's, it's an easier like, angle People are getting it. killed. Yes. Like Israelis got killed by Hamas. Palestinians are getting killed in Gaza. Like, and, and it's easier to like ignore that and be like, whoa, did Obama like do something that, you know, is controversial. Let's focus on that. So I was, I was pretty disappointed in that. And then he was self-reflective, but I'm going to say again, because I'll just, I will be the Obama defender on this one. You have an Iran deal in place. Uh, you don't have the embassy moved to Jerusalem. 
uh, and you don't have an Abraham Accords that totally cuts out the Palestinians, I don't think we're here. I'm just going to say it because everybody else is saying like, well, Obama gave money to Iran. That's why this happened. But no, maybe Trump pulled out of a deal that was de-escalating tensions and then ratcheted up those tensions. I mean, like, so if you want to play that game, like you, you, you don't have the facts on your side. Yeah, I was like literally sitting there for like seven minutes or however long the answer was and like really appreciated it and hearing him talk out loud in that way. And it just felt honest, right? In the room, it felt really good. It felt it felt real. It felt honest. It felt self-reflective. It felt self-critical. And it made me appreciate him all over again. But my broken Internet brain was going to all the ways in real time that it was going to get twisted. And so, of course, the right wing went with the Iran deal piece and was like, oh, Obama, you funded this terror attack. And then the left... I saw the sort of lefties dunking on him with this Tanahasi Coates clip where Tanahasi is talking about visiting the West Bank and how you always hear that the conflict is complex, but when you get there, you see that it's actually very simple. And what he's talking about is the point you are making that like the immorality of occupation is not complicated. It's black and white. It's very clear that when you're living occupation, there's nothing just or moral about a Palestinian not being able to walk on the same street as an, as an Israeli, right? That's one of the examples he used. But what Obama's talking about there is the history is complicated. Figuring out a solution to the problem is complicated. Getting two sides to summon the political will to solve the problem is complicated. So that's like the experience that Obama was drawing from. But to just, Ben, to really crystallize the stupidity of it, um, the political playbook wrote up that when Obama said nobody's hands are clean, that uh, the quote could be lumped into, quote, those notorious evocative phrases politicians used in moments of passions, sick, such as Bush's notorious mission accomplished. Now, first of all, I I believe that mission accomplished was written on a banner on an aircraft carrier. It wasn't like a, a slip of the tongue from Bush, but also, what the fuck are you talking what about? What does that even mean? He's not even president of the United States <laughs> now, by the way, too. Like, it's just so stupid. I mean, so it, stupid. It's just like, oh, can we create a controversy around Nothing. something Obama said that is self evidently true? Like, most of the billions of people on earth who are familiar with this conflict would hear what Obama said and be like, yeah, that's basically true. Um, but the authors of Political Playbook are like, how can we write something that is so fucking annoying and over the top that maybe some other people will be forced to follow our, you know, daily newsletter. It's a shot at Biden. It's a shot at Hillary. It wasn't a shot at Biden. It was Obama unpacking his thoughts about this. You think he didn't run the initial statement by the Biden administration? Of course he did. Uh, It's just talking uh, about the whole thing is just uh, there was a lot of stupidity. But uh, but uh, I encourage people to actually listen to the whole answer, not because everything is right that he says. It's just like somebody who's smart trying to unpack how they're thinking and feeling about it, you know, and and you can disagree with parts of it as as anything anybody says on this yeah. you know, issue someone will disagree with but the idea that it's some kind of hugely consequential statement is crazy no he's a human being watching the same news reports that we are <laughs> and he's horrified by them and he was reacting in real time and i appreciated that honesty and vulnerability Pod of the world is brought to you by Karyuma. Kariuma has been our go-to sneaker for a while now because they are so comfortable. They go with everything and they're made with consciously sourced materials. I wear my Kariuma sneakers all the time. They look good. They feel super comfortable. You can wear them to work. You can wear them out. You can wear them to walk the dog. Perfect for every occasion. Last year, we collaborated with Kariuma to create the No Steps Back sneakers. And we can't believe that we have now designed our second limited edition collaboration with Kariuma, the Love It or Leave It sneaker. Hell yeah. 
Drum roll, please. These shoes have a colorful design with lots of Easter eggs. I mean, not Taylor Swift level Easter eggs. Nice. We're not insane. Yeah. Just fun stuff, like punted on a surfboard. Yeah. Which Dating is a metaphor. Carly Claus. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Plus, a portion of the proceeds from every pair sold is donated to Vote Save America's Every Last Vote Fund. Our first Carriama collab sold out so fast. So, if you want a pair for yourself or the Love It or Leave It fan in your life, Make sure to snag one now. They make the perfect gift for the holiday season with free returns. Just head to crooked.com slash store. That's crooked.com slash store. Ashley's Memorial Day sale is going on now. Shop our biggest selection of hot buys, cool deals, or shop limited time savings on new summer spaces. Plus, get 72-month special financing on select in-store mattress purchases made with your Ashley Advantage Synchrony credit card between May 14th and June 3rd. Whether you're redecorating indoors or rethinking your outdoor space, save big on this season's trending styles. Only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. Minimum monthly payments required. No minimum purchase required. See store for details. All right, people, we all know the stakes of the 2024 election are high, whether it's keeping the Senate, taking back the House, or stopping Republicans at the state level. If you're ready to make a real difference, sign up for Vote Save America's 2024 volunteer program. And just to make it interesting, we're pitting you against each other. Vote Save America will sort you onto a team east or west, and you'll compete with a community of other volunteers to maximize your impact on the ground with opportunities tailored to you and the causes you care about. The team with the highest volunteering staff could secure the biggest prize of all, the continuation of American democracy. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash 2024 now and get ready to organize or else. This message has been paid for by Vote Save America. You can learn more at votesaveamerica.com and this ad has not been authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee. Uh, we're going very long, so we have a couple more quick things before we get to Ben's interview. So we did want to go through some of the news about the war in Ukraine because, of course, uh, that war is still raging, even though our focus has been more on Gaza lately. So President Zelensky is doing his best to stay on Washington's radar screen. On Sunday, he went on Meet the Press, where he delivered this memorable soundbite. Do you ever feel defeated? I have a lot of power, but even feeling strong and have a lot of energy, it doesn't mean that we want to fight all our life because the price is high, like I said, because the war takes the best of us, the best heroes, the best men, women, children, that's it. But we are not ready to give our freedom to this terrorist Putin. That's it. That's why we are fighting. That's it. Kristen Welker's like, oh, uh, life service. Yeah, come on, pod, say the world. We won't beep you. <laughs> yeah, we won't yeah, bleep yeah. you, Zelensky. Uh, that interview came after Zelensky had to publicly rebuke his top general for saying the war had become a stalemate. And uh, shortly after Zelensky fired his head of special operations forces. This also, uh, you know, this week coincided with considerable public anger at the Ukrainian military leadership within Ukraine because 19 Ukrainian soldiers were killed by a Russian airstrike as they were all congregating together for a, a medal award ceremony. They were all out in the open for too long and they got uh, targeted. And it's a tragic mistake yeah, yeah. Uh, that's really created a huge controversy. And then Ben over in Russia, uh, Putin signed a law pulling Moscow out of the comprehensive nuclear test ban treaty. This is largely a symbolic move, but it is a reminder that the only nuclear arms control agreement still in place is the New START treaty. So not great. Uh, and then lastly, the Wall Street Journal 
reported that U.S. intelligence agencies believe that the Wagner Mercenary Group is preparing to send air defense systems to Hezbollah. That would be a hell of an escalation. Uh, and, you know, again, quite the middle finger to Bibi Netanyahu because the Israelis very pointedly refused to provide missile defense systems to the Ukrainians. Uh, and now, you know, Putin's uh, stooges over at the Wagner Group are seemingly going to help out a terrorist, a terrorist organization, organization targeting him. So, Ben, you know, uh, look, I get that Zelensky's audience in, is, in shooting down the sort of stalemate observation is the U.S. Congress, right? Because he's yes. trying to help Biden get yes. the supplemental through and get all the uh, additional funding and weapon systems he needs to keep this war going. But I mean, if we're being honest, it, it does seem like it's a stalemate, right? No, there's no question. I mean, uh, I think that was one of those moments of candor where someone says something that everybody kind of feels to be true right. in the sense that the front line has only moved like a few miles over the course of this multi-month counteroffensive. And I think that you, you put your finger on it. The, the reason that comment matters is the bulk of that supplemental is Ukraine funding because the administration is clearly trying to get the funding they need to, to get through the whole year to the election. Yep. And the idea that it's a stalemate, you know, some Republicans will use that, I'm sure, to say, why are we pouring arms and tens of billions of dollars I into a stalemate? And, and that, you know, the message that Zelensky is trying to get across is, you know, look, A, we, we need this just to stay alive, right? I mean, you know, in other words, like if, if, if the Ukrainians are cut off, it's not just about whether or not there's a stalemate, it's whether or not Putin can make gains. But also the special operations change indicates that their, their strategy is shifting a bit from kind of pushing across this entire huge front line to maybe focusing on particular areas or maybe doing things behind enemy lines through special operations uh, or drones or other things. But it, it's a reminder that like the even larger war that is taking place in Europe, you know, th th there's not a clear end game there either. And yeah. so part of what is so uncertain right now is you've got these two wars, you've got this massive supplemental bill. And I don't think anybody could say clearly what what's the end game in either Ukraine or Gaza. And and I'm, you know, that's beyond the control of the White House. I'm not even suggesting it, it's a challenge for them. It's not their fault. It is what it is. You know? Yeah. Let's, let's hope that that uh, Wagner Group transfer of the missile defense system to Hezbollah does not happen. Although yeah. if it did, and there's intelligence about it, it, it's the kind of thing you could imagine the U.S. or the Israelis uh, taken out on the runway and, know, well, when it lands. And part of what makes me so invisible, you know, we haven't done World War Watch on this podcast in a while because, mm. How you feeling? Uh, because it's kind of evident, but that's when those two wars start to feel like the same conflict. Mm. That's when you, <laughs> that's like when you, your DEFCON alert, you know, goes up a bit because it's like, you know, the Wagner group trying to transition air defense systems to Hezbollah and Israel hitting that. So th then suddenly this is kind of one theater, you know, yeah. and uh, that's a little alarming. Not ideal. Another sort of major brewing issue as we're all focused on, on Gaza and Israel is over in Pakistan, where hundreds of thousands of Afghan refugees are being forced to leave the country. This is part of Pakistan's repatriation plan that aims to remove undocumented people from the country. November 1st was the deadline that the interim Pakistani government gave for people without legal documents to either leave voluntarily or face arrest or deportation. The authorities have been going door to door to check migrants' uh, documentation and possibly push them out of the country. There's about four million Afghans living in Pakistan, and about 1.7 million of those people are expected to be affected by this policy, many of whom are the children of refugees, 
uh, whose parents fled fighting in previous conflicts. And so these these kids have never actually lived in Afghanistan, but are being forced to go back there. Pakistan's government says deportations are necessary because 14 out of 24 major terrorist attacks this year were carried out by Afghan nationals. They are concerned. Uh, the, the broader relationship between Afghanistan and Pakistan has been deteriorating. Pakistani officials accuse Afghanistan of providing a safe haven for the terrorist group TTP. Quite what, the, what an irony, man. I, I literally like oh my God. depressing irony and role reversal yeah, there. Yeah. So again, regardless of why these deportations are happening, this outcome is catastrophic for the people involved. Many folks are getting you know forcibly pushed out of their homes you know, at gunpoint. They have nothing but the clothes on their backs. They're going to return to a country that is basically a failed state that's reeling from decades of conflicts, natural disasters, earthquakes, like you name it. So I guess, Ben, I mean, we want to dig into this deeper yeah. uh, down the road and, and talk to some of the folks being impacted. But do you think there's any country or political entity or any way to force the Pakistanis to stop with this plan or are they just they're going to do it? I mean, they seem pretty intent on doing it, and the hypocrisy is extreme, given the fact that they gave the Taliban a safe haven for all those years. And you, Taliban could not have won, won the war in yeah. Afghanistan. The key without Pakistan giving them a safe haven, and now they're shocked, shocked that that's coming back to haunt them. I, I do think, look, Pakistan gets a lot of international assistance. They get it uh, in terms of direct assistance. Get it in terms of kind of financial assistance. Uh, and, and, and I do just think there has to be an effort to leverage that to say. You know, we, we're not we're going to keep bailing Pakistan out um, if if this is how they're going to treat 1.7 million people, um, many of whom, you know, to, to, to use an analogy, it's kind of like the dreamers here. Like they're mm-hmm. people that are like, you know, in their 30s and 40s and never really lived in Afghanistan. You know, um, th- there has to be some way to to, to to slow this down and to slow this roll and to like uh, and to try to at least identify like a, a less comprehensive and onerous deportation to just say 1.7 million people have to leave the country tomorrow it runs counter to kind of how the world is supposed to manage these things. Now, I, I can hear the Pakistani argument like, you know, the U.S. deports people. And so I'm not suggesting there's no basis for Pakistan saying like there needs to be documentation, things like this. But what the way they're doing this is it, it makes no sense. It's Vindictive. By the way, it's probably going to hurt Pakistan too. I'm right. sure a lot of these people are in the Pakistani economy. This yes. is just a dumb policy, and so I think, in, terms, in addition to being a cruel one, and so I, I do think there has to be, you know, in donor nations, international institutions like the IMF that have supported Pakistan. I think need to be raising this because there is leverage here. It just has to be used. Yeah. Uh, one final story before uh, Ben's interview. Uh, listeners might know that the United Kingdom has set up this ongoing independent investigation into the government's handling of the COVID-19 pandemic. Good idea, but also it's a doozy. Uh, we should again, we should dig into this more down the road because Boris Johnson is going to testify at some point soon. And in the meantime, all of the WhatsApp messages from these various officials are dribbling out, including from Johnson, his top aides. And the way they talk about Boris Johnson and the way they talk about each other is unfucking believable. They think he's a blithering idiot. They hate his guts. Like top civil servants are destroying him, you know, in these messages. It, it's amazing. But Ben, this revelation uh, caught our eye today. This is from a witness statement. Um, a person said that at one point early in the pandemic, Johnson, quote, suggested to senior civil servants and advisors that he wanted to be injected with COVID-19 on television to demonstrate to the public that it did not pose a threat. So that's Bojo for you. Inject me 
I mean, we had injected me with bleach. I was going to say, I was spent, that was where I was going to go with this because like, actually, I'm, I'm not entirely sure which of those is dumber. Um, probably the bleaching a little bit. I mean, I, but like, uh, not by call. much because Boris Johnson almost died of COVID. Remember, he was like in the ICU, you know? They were making contingency um, planning for what to do when he died. They were like deputizing people and thinking about a rollout strategy. Well, because you know what that, that kind of demonstrates about Boris Johnson? I think sometimes there's a sense that people act like dumb populists, but they're actually like smart. Mm -hmm. Or sometimes Americans look at Brits and they're like, he speaks with a British accent, so yep. he sounds kind of smart. Yep. It, it just demonstrates that the guy's a, a moron. Like he's just stupid, you know? And and actually, no, he's not some like, you know, like super, well, maybe he's like the Wizard of Oz behind the curtain. There's nothing behind the curtain. I mean, th this guy is a guy that literally, let's just, he's not that young and he's not that healthy looking. No, um, no. Uh, Terrible like, hair. Yeah, yeah. Like I, I um, you know, like this is not the smartest bulb uh, in, in the uh, in the light bulb. He's kit. a profoundly unserious person. Yeah. And apparently he made this suggestion multiple times to different sets of civil servants. And remember, this is a guy who skipped like a bunch of the early COVID meetings because he was, I think, writing a book about Shakespeare or something. Like he was doing some grifting bullshit when he was supposed to be running the country. But it's a reminder that in this horrifying moment in like the world's history, two of the most powerful countries on earth were run by clowns. And meanwhile, just a quick British point here, like the NHS, the National Health Service workers, who've been underfunded for years Thanks because to the of Tories, Tories yeah. are fucking busting their ass, like getting the nation through COVID. And this blowhard is like, ah, maybe I'll inject myself on national TV. Like, like, and while then they demagogue the NHS, like I like pour one out for like the, the nurses and doctors of Truly. the British National Health Service that have this lunatic leading them through this thing, you know? Some Machiavellian advisor should be like, yeah, let's do it. Yeah. Yeah. Act, well, yeah. Maybe they did actually. Let's the, go. Guy, the guy did get COVID. Giddy up. We don't know. Uh, one quick note before we go to a break. So the cover for our new Pot Save America book is out, Ben. It's called Ooh. Democracy or Else, How to Save America in 10 Easy Steps, written by Yours truly, Favreau, and love it. It's an easy guide to saving American democracy. Lots of funny pictures and jokes. But best of all, Cricket is donating the profits to support Vote Save America, its partners, and other organizations mobilizing for progressive outcomes in 2024 and beyond. So check out the cover now and pre-order at cricket.com slash books or wherever books are sold. And there are signed editions available from bookshop.org. All right, we're going to take a quick break. Uh, and when we come back, you'll hear Ben's interview with Nathan Thrall. Ashley's Memorial Day mattress sale is going on now. Save big on select adjustable mattress sets up to $1,200 on Beautyrest Black, up to $800 on Purple, and up to $500 on Tempur-Pedic. Plus, get 72-month special financing with select in-store mattress purchases made with your Ashley Advantage Synchrony credit card between May 14th and June 3rd. Visit your local Ashley store or ashley.com for better sleep and savings. Only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. Minimum monthly payments required. No minimum purchase required. See store for details. All right, people, we all know the stakes of the 2024 election are high, whether it's keeping the Senate, taking back the House, or stopping Republicans at the state level. If you're ready to make a real difference, sign up for Vote Save America's 2024 volunteer program. And just to make it interesting, we're pitting you against each other. Vote Save America will sort you onto a team east or west, and you'll compete with a community of other volunteers to maximize your impact on the ground with opportunities tailored to you and the causes you care about. The team with the highest volunteering staff could secure the biggest prize of all, the continuation of American democracy. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash 2024 now and get ready to organize or else. This message has been paid for by Vote Save America. You can learn more at votesaveamerica.com and this ad has not been authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee. 
All right, I'm very pleased to welcome to Pod Save the World Nathan Thrall, who is a Jewish American journalist who lives in Jerusalem. Uh, he spent years reporting on Israel and Palestine. Uh, he's the former director of the Arab Israeli Project at the International Crisis Group, a tremendous organization that people should should follow on this and other conflicts. He's also the author of a new book, A Day in the Life of Abed Salama, that uh, I, I heartily recommend to people if you really want to understand the complexities of the occupation and life on the West Bank. Uh, but Nathan, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So we'll obviously get into the kind of current events here, but I, I want to start with your book. Um, I, I was really struck by it because a lot of people tried to capture the complexities and realities of, of Israel and Palestine by kind of pulling back and looking at history and looking at different dynamics and groups. But you really narrowed down and focused in on kind of one incident, one person's story. And I want you to just describe how, how did you find like a, a deeper truth that you were looking for about the situation in the West Bank, about the occupation uh, through this story? What, just walk people through who haven't read the book, obviously, a, a bit about the story you chose and what it illuminates. Yeah. So I tell the story of a tragic bus accident involving a group of Palestinian kindergartners who um, lived uh, in the town of Anatta, which is partially annexed by Israel, annexed in 1967, and partially unannexed. And um, this is a town just outside uh, of Jerusalem. The part that's annexed is inside the municipal boundary of Jerusalem. And uh, that's the city I live in. I would pass by this community uh, nearly every day. And um, the community is encircled uh, by walls. It has uh, the 26-foot-tall concrete wall of the separation barrier on three sides. And on the fourth side is another kind of wall, um, which is the wall that runs through Route 4370, a segregated road. Um, with Israeli traffic on one side, Palestinian traffic on the other, famously known as the Apartheid Road. And um, I would pass by this uh, walled enclave and hardly pass it, pay it any mind. And after this accident occurred, I couldn't stop thinking about the families that share the city with me and live a radically different life. And I began to reach out to everyone involved in this accident, uh, both Jews and Palestinians. And I quickly realized that by telling the story of this accident, I could in fact tell the whole story of Israel-Palestine uh, in microcosm. You know, it's called A Day in the Life of Abed Salama, but it's really about the entire life of Abed Salama and some of the other characters in the book. And what I do is I follow Abed uh, uh, on the eve of the accident. He takes his five-year-old son, Milad, to go buy treats for a kindergarten class trip. And in this walled enclave, they have no playgrounds. The streets are uh, look like uh, rubble. There is uh, no lane in the main uh, streets. It's barely wide enough for a car and a bus to uh, pass one another. Uh, this is 130,000 people living in this tight, dense, urban ghetto uh, without uh, a single ATM. And even the emergency services uh, cannot enter without an army uh, escort. So this is an area of uh, gross neglect. And because 
the members of this community have different statuses within Israel. Some of them have green West Bank IDs that don't allow them to enter the rest of Jerusalem. Some of them have blue Jerusalem IDs that do allow them to enter Jerusalem. So this kindergarten class trip couldn't go to a nearby play area just on the other side of the wall, for example, in the settlement of Pisgat Ze'ev, a, a stone's throw away. And they had to follow the winding path of the wall to a play area on the outskirts of Ramallah. And after they passed through a checkpoint, they were struck by a giant semi-trailer that was uh, going back and forth from a settlement quarry, uh, transporting stones to a factory in East Jerusalem that would um, help to pave the, the roads inside Israel with the natural resources of the West Bank. And the bus flipped over and caught fire Six children died, one teacher died, and the people who were left to deal with the accident because the emergency services took so very long to come, the first Israeli fire truck came over a half hour after the accident, after all of the uh, kids had been evacuated, the kids who lived. And the bystanders there were taking these soot-covered children off of the bus and they themselves had a mix of IDs, green IDs and blue IDs. So if you were a Palestinian bystander with a blue ID and somebody put a kindergartner in the back of your car, you would drive to a superior Jerusalem hospital and uh, take the child there. And if you had a green ID, you might go somewhere else like Ramallah. And Abed, when he hears about the accident, he races to the scene he tries to flag down uh, an Israeli jeep, uh, an army jeep, uh, to get a ride just a few minutes up the road to the accident site. They refuse. He gets there, and other parents are already there. And there's a crowd, and he cannot see a single child from the accident. And he asks people in the crowd, you know, where are the children? And they tell him, you know, they're at a military base uh, up the road, a minute up the road. They're at an East Jerusalem hospital. They're at this West Jerusalem hospital. They're in Ramallah. They're in Nablus. And he himself, Abed, has a green West Bank ID. He can't go to most of these places to look for his child. He can't go to an Israeli military base. He can't enter East Jerusalem or West Jerusalem. So he goes to Ramallah and he calls on a relative who has a blue ID to go look in, in the Jerusalem hospitals for his son. And it's more than 36 hours before he finds out the fate of his five-year-old boy. And uh, we follow Abed through those 36 hours, but the, the theme of the book is really more than just Abed's personal quest, but really how these Jewish and Palestinian characters live these separate and unequal lives in very close proximity um, and, and how those lives come into collision on the, on the day of this tragedy. People ask what, why people use the word apartheid. I, I don't, if people have a better word to describe what you just went through, um, they can try to find it in the English language. Um, I, I want to ask you, though, you, know, you, you've, you talk about the Jewish and Palestinian perspective in your book. I, mean, I think the impact on Palestinians is pretty clear from what you just said. What do you think has been the impact of the occupation um, on, on Jewish Israelis? How does having a policy like that affect a country like Israel? 
Well, I think that um, people live with a kind of uh, internal contradiction, a deep internal contradiction. They're told uh, on the one hand that we have the most moral army in the world and that our cause is uh, just. And on the other, they see the deep injustice that's uh, undeniable and that's excused in different ways. It's the situation that's lasted more than a half a century now is described as temporary. There are many kinds of um, excuses that people make and there are talking points that people go to. So I think that living with that situation and justifying it to yourself and telling yourself that you are a democracy and that you are uh, moral and liberal, um, I think that that is a, a terrible contradiction for people to hold in their minds uh, that uh, tortures them. And what would you say to somebody, you know, who might be listening to this interview and thinking, you know, maybe there's some people who just don't want to hear this, and it's probably a lot of people. Uh, and don't worry, we'll get to that. I'm going to ask you about uh, the reaction to your book in a second here. But to people who will say, you know, what I've heard, and I'm sure you've heard even more than me, which is that it's the Palestinians' fault. They wouldn't make peace. They uh, elected Hamas in Gaza. They have this bad leadership, the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank. They, you know, when we pulled that back from places, we got rockets. Um, that this is necessary, this system you described is necessary so as to ensure that Israeli civilians aren't threatened. You've heard all that. Uh, what would be your answer to that, that listener who's, here, who's probably thinking those things right now? So I think that, you know, the fundamental issue um, is one of historical understanding and of framing. And I think that for the vast majority of Israelis, including the, in particular, this is less true of the Israeli right, actually, uh, but the Israelis of the center and center left and most uh, people in the U.S. and certainly most U.S. officials uh, is a that their framing of the conflict is a 1967 framing. They're, they basically believe that the um, primary issue to be resolved is the occupation of Gaza and the West Bank and East Jerusalem that began in 1967. And for Palestinians, uh, the occupation is the most egregious a form of oppression that they face today, but it is not the primary or sole issue that the conflict is about. Um, it is about uh, Zionism. It is about a political ideology that began in uh, putting Jews, settling Jews inside historic Palestine in 1882 at a time when the Jewish population was roughly 5% of historic Palestine and having a project to establish a Jewish homeland against the will of the native majority. And that culminated in 1948 in the mass expulsion and flight of uh, 750,000 Palestinians. We're talking about within the territory of what became Israel, 78% of historic Palestine, we're talking about 80% of the population is removed and overnight, a Palestinian majority was turned into a minority, and they were not, uh, after the armistice agreements were drawn up, they were not allowed to return. That's what the conflict is primarily about for Palestinians. And I think that at the most basic level, that is the cause of this huge uh, perception gap between 
Palestinians and their allies and uh, Israelis and their allies over um, what is a fair deal and who's at fault for there not having been uh, a deal uh, until now. Uh, that's very useful context. Um, and, you know, further concessions, right, uh, were envisioned. The demilitarization of any Palestinian state, the kind of long-term Israeli military presence in the West Bank, um, and the, the people should get a sense of just how how far the, the line continues to, to move even in more recent negotiations. I want to ask you, obviously, about the current situation. And before, again, getting to the reaction to your book, um, you know, we've been talking a lot about Gaza, and one of the reasons why I want to talk to you is you've obviously focused a lot on the West Bank. Um, and and the West Bank hasn't got as much attention recently, but um, there's been a huge uptick in violence in the West Bank. We've had, uh, according to estimates, at least 155 Palestinians killed in the West Bank since October 7th. Um, some of that by kind of uh, Israeli settler violence, kind of uh, vigilante-type violence. Um, what is your sense of the current situation in the West Bank? And, and what should people be looking for as the world's attention is on Gaza in terms of the potential for things to escalate in the West Bank? So uh, while all eyes are on Gaza, it is an opportunity for uh, far-right settlers and settler militias to advance their old project of dispossessing uh, Palestinians. And um, we were already, prior to October 7th, looking at a situation of um, record levels of displacement by settler militias in the West Bank from the beginning of 2022 until uh, September, when the UN issued a report saying that over 1,100 Palestinians had been forcibly displaced in the West Bank in that period. This is a level of displacement we had not seen in decades. Just since October 7th, an additional 800 uh, people have been forcibly displaced, largely by settler militias. Uh, Palestinians' entire communities removed. Uh, many articles in the press describing this as ethnic cleansing. So. Um, that is one of the main things that we should be looking at in the West Bank. And the other thing that we should be looking at is the potential for a collapse of the Palestinian Authority. On the first uh, weekend after the October 7th attack, we saw mass protests in city centers in the West Bank, clashes between Palestinians and the Palestinian Authority, which is perceived as um, working hand in glove with Israel to uh, solidify Israel's control and uh, perpetuate the occupation. And I have never seen, prior to those images, I had never seen anything that looked more like the beginning of the end of the PA. And um, we haven't seen something on that scale uh, since, but this is all very fresh. And it's quite possible that we are going to see major uh, disruption uh, and political collapse in the West Bank. Yeah, which would lead to a very volatile situation, right? Because you still have millions of Palestinians there and they'd lose all governing authority and, and you've had settler militias unleashed. It, it could get a lot worse there. I want to ask about your book. So it comes out right before October 7th. Um, you told the Washington Post that you estimated that a quarter of your appearances uh, were canceled in terms of like your book tour, mainly in the United States, but also in, in, in Europe, I think. Um, and that's run the gamut from, you know, 
Arkansas having laws against BDS and Sarah Huckabee Sanders, you know, condemning you and uh, but even seemingly well-meaning people saying it's just not the time to have a conversation about this book because we're focused on what happened. I mean, how do you react to the cancellations of your these types of events? What do you just say to some of those audiences here, uh, the Jewish American audiences that, that might be very interested in the story in your book and some of the, the issues around the occupation, but who felt after October 7th, I don't want to engage with that because I'm yeah. just feeling solidarity and I don't want to signal that I'm somehow not fully behind Israel in this moment. I mean, how do you unpack that in your own experience and for other people? Yeah. So there have been uh, an array of reasons that uh, different events of mine have been canceled. And uh, some of them have been, uh, you know, by the UK police canceling a, you know, 400 seat event in London, citing uh, public safety. Others have been an entire conference of Palestinian Americans whose uh, uh, conference in Houston was shut down. Uh, the pressure was put by a pro-Israel organization on the Hilton Hotel to cancel the conference, and that was canceled. Uh, and others have been, as you say, um, you know, Jewish groups who, for example, a progressive synagogue in New York that told me now is not the time. You know, our people are grieving and they're not prepared to, you know, hear a story about occupation right now. And and my response to them has been, first of all, I've spoken to many Jewish audiences since October 7th. Uh, those talks have all gone uh, very well. People have been grateful for it. Uh, um, there's a way to talk about these issues with sensitivity and uh, acknowledgement of the terrible grief that Israelis and Jews are feeling after October 7th, uh, while also acknowledging the grief of Palestinians who uh, uh, you know, are mourning the loss of more than 4,000 children as, as we speak today. Um, and, and I've told them that not only have those events gone well and have people been grateful to have this conversation, but there has never been a more necessary uh, and urgent uh, time to have these conversations. We have seen round after round of bloodshed in Gaza and when that bloodshed occurs, everybody says, let's have calm. This book is about calm. This book is about what that quote unquote calm looks like. That calm isn't calm. That calm is violent and it's oppressive and it leads to violence in reaction to it. And unless we do more than call for calm, unless we actually look at this system of 7 million Jews 7 million Palestinians, all living under Israeli control, the ma vast majority of those Palestinians living without basic civil rights, unless we address that and talk about it and think about how we're going to end that system, uh, we are doomed to see more and more of this bloodshed, which I think all of the audience that I'm speaking to uh, want to see come to an end. Yeah, well, th that's... Uh, another conversation for another time will be uh, potential solutions in the back end of this. I want to ask you one last question. You know, you've become friends with uh, Abed Salama through this, uh, through telling his story and his family's story, the tragic loss of his child and, and what it illuminates. You also were traveling together for this book tour when October 7th happened and the days after. I'm just wondering what that was like to, to, for you to be with 
this Palestinian whose story you've so deeply em- embedded through this horrific attack by Hamas and then through the Israeli strikes on Gaza. What what was that like and what is that ex- was that experience like for him? So um, it was extremely difficult for him to be away from his family during this time of war, and he had to cut our book tour uh, short because of um, the situation in the West Bank. It really feels like uh, the second intifada right now. Entire communities are shut down. Mobility is greatly restricted. In Abed's community of Anatta, after October 7th, they shut down the two exits. There's one exit uh, toward the rest of Jerusalem for those with blue IDs, one exit at the bottom for people with both green and blue IDs. And it just takes, you know, four soldiers to put down a gate or put up a couple roadblocks and they can shut down 130,000 people. It's like that all over the West Bank. You know, every Palestinian family is relying on higher paying jobs in Israel and the settlements, and those uh, jobs don't exist right now. And even Abed's son, who works in Ramallah, was told by his employer in Ramallah, don't come because of all of the settler violence. It's not safe on the roads. So uh, he, there is a... Um, a situation of extreme violence right now and uh, economic constriction. Abbott's wife's cousin uh, was just killed in Albire while driving his car when Israel was doing a military operation to arrest some people there. Um, and he just felt that he couldn't be away from his family. But prior to that, when we were together and processing October 7th and watching the war unfold in Gaza, you know, it it, it was um, for me, uh, you know, an, an experience of us of us bonding even more over our shared horror at the killing of civilians um, and our uh, joint, you know, condemnation of, of war crimes, uh, no matter who who commits them. And so I was um, I never had any doubts that Abed and I saw eye to eye on that, and and I was, um, um, you know, grateful actually to be with him um, as as we were watching all of this unfold. Well, look, um, people should definitely check out the book. Uh, it's an extraordinary window into daily life. It's also just a, a profoundly human story, a day in the life of Abed Salama, and it reminds us that if you actually put aside rationalization and competitive grievance and, and just focus on you know, humanity uh, of the people involved in this, it, it, things become a lot clearer. Um, but thank you, Nathan, for uh, for your uh, for joining us, for your voice on this uh, issue, and uh, look forward to keeping in touch. Thanks so much for having me on, Ben. That's it for Potsy of the World. However, we're going to stay in here and answer some subscriber questions, Ben. So to hear that and to get episodes ad-free, go subscribe to Crooked Subscription community at crooked.com slash friends. Pod Save the World is a Crooked Media production. Our executive producers are me, Tommy Vitor, Ben Rhodes, and Reed Sherlin. Our producer is Alona Minkowski, and associate producer is Ashley Mizuo. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick, audio support by Kyle Seglin and Charlotte Landis. Our studio technician is David Tolles. Thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn and Phoebe Bradford, who upload our episodes and videos to youtube.com slash podsavetheworld.
Stay connected this winter with this unbeatable deal from BreezeLine. Get reliable, fiber-powered internet for just $19.99 per month with all-in pricing for two years. But that's not all. Your first month is on us. This deal gets better with a free modem and installation along with free Wi-Fi your way whole home coverage. Safeguard your network from cyber threats and keep all your devices connected and secured with this amazing offer. Act now. Terms and conditions apply. Offer expires March 3rd, 2024. Learn more at BreezeLine.com. Sofas, recliners, love seats, everything is better in leather. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley, where bold meets durable. And wait a minute, who's been finger painting on the couch again? That's okay, leather is easy to clean. The new leather collection at Ashley is built with the durability you need for the whole family. Yes, pets too. Luxury is meant to be livable. Shop chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home.